This is Publishing Talks, a podcast about books and the publishing industry. I'm your host, David Wilk, and today I'm talking to Arthur Atwell, who's who is in South Africa, Cape Town, and whose primary work is as a digital uh, tech, uh, a literary digital technology person. I don't, I don't know what else to say. Um, sorry about that, Arthur. But um, <laughs> the what Arthur is primarily, well, his primary job is with a company called Electric Bookworks, which we're going to talk about a little bit. But uh, Arthur, you have done a number of really interesting nonprofit projects, and one of them is called Book Dash. And I think that's the reason that we originally decided to talk together. So maybe you could talk a little bit about your background, how you became involved in book publishing, and particularly in the digital side. Yeah, thanks, David. Thanks for having me on the on the podcast. Yeah, I got into book publishing uh, in a sense before I was born. My my mother was a publisher, and I grew up in a house full of books to the ceiling, and uh, got my first job as an editor at Oxford University Press twenty something years ago. And I was always particularly interested in the production technology side of the business, and particularly in and weeding out the enormous inefficiencies of bookmaking. And that just led me on a long path of experiments to make books in more interesting, more efficient, effective ways. And that has led to a whole bunch of adventures that I guess we'll get to talk about a little today. So, well, tell me a little bit about Electric Bookworks. I've looked at your website. There, there's some information there, but I, you know, you've done a lot of project work for publishers um, in a variety of different forms. Uh, and categories, uh, but maybe you could talk a little bit about what you actually do. Yeah, sure. Electric Bookworks works with clients from around the world, producing their books for them, particularly when they need those books produced in many formats, print, ebook, website, app, and so on. Because of course, so much publishing these days needs to happen in multiple channels. And our special skill is producing all those formats from one source of truth, so that version control and everything is all in one place. So do you work, this is going to get a little bit into the kind of workflow idea, but when you work with a client, do you ask them to structure the information, the, you know, the content, um, and tag it in certain, you know, in using XML, or do you just, do you take care of, the, do you work together with the client in an interactive way so you know what their uh, you know, what are the important features, how to balance, which things get more emphasis, and how to equalize that across different formats and different platforms. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a very much a close working relationship from the early stages of the project most of the time. So we've found that uh, most of our clients are organizations that aren't publishing companies as such, but are organizations that need to act like publishing companies and outsource their publishing work. And so sometimes we'll get involved even at the early conceptualization stage of a publication and really either handhold or just do all the work right from the, the beginning, including commissioning, writing and, right. and everything all the way through to, to publication. And sometimes we get involved a little later. But we've generally found that our clients and their authors must do what they do best, which is write and create raw content. And then we step into make sure it works in digital and print online and offline formats. Uh, and we'll often be involved in the kind of development stage, uh, making sure that it works across those formats. 
uh, and then take it all the way through to publication. Right. So in a lot of ways, you're really operating as a kind of multi-platform publisher, outs- mm. providing the outsourced, uh, extre- extremely outsourced, but all of the services that a either a publisher or a non-publisher might not be able to provide uh, in order to bring the publication to fruition in these multiple channels. So that means you work with EPUB and I assume EPUB, but I mean, maybe you could talk mm-hmm. about what, how do you, what do you do when you publish literally on the web, for example? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, we, we publish to, we think of it as five specific formats that are important, particularly important, obviously print, because print is critical for the kind of credibility and authority of a publication. Uh, screen PDF, yeah, the kind of PDF that you might be able to email or have someone download, low res and easy to open on a, on a screen. And those are our PDF formats. And then, of course, EPUB, because that's really important, especially in certain genres. And if you're ever going to publish on a place like Kindle or iBooks. And then, very importantly, web. And what we mean by web is that the book is a website. It's every chapter is a HTML page on the web that you can search and bookmark and click to and share on the web and so on. Some of our clients put some of those chapters or books behind either subscription or sort of logins, but many of them are open access books. So we're producing these books so that you can get all the scale and discoverability of a website with the book content itself. And I think that this is going to be an increasingly important publishing format. And to some extent, the things that have held it back from being a major format in publishing have been finding a business model for website content when consumers are wary of paywalls for website content. Uh, And also because they just, publishers haven't had an easy way to produce books as websites and in very commercially important formats like print. And then there's just this one little problem, which is that there isn't really a word for this thing. Is it a book website, a microsite, a book site? (laughs) So, um, but essentially, yeah, the, the book can be a website. And some of our big flagship projects really done well. Our, our biggest one, which is a undergrad economics textbook called The Economy, which we produce for a nonprofit in the UK called Core Economics. That textbook is now used at over 300 universities around the world, hundreds of thousands of students using it in on the web and then also in print and then finally also in app form. So that's a kind of offline mm-hmm. app you might install in the Google Play Store or the Windows Store so that you can have the whole book on your device offline. And that's really important for students who don't have regular internet access at, at home or on the move. So all those formats come from our kind of special way of doing things. Uh, and that is really where we found our niche. That's really interesting. So, and I assume that the, the web in the case of a textbook is a kind of subscription model where everybody, they get a key to give them access to the material so that it can't be shared without authorization. Is that correct? For some of our clients, but as it happens, and perhaps it's just an accident of who I've come to know over the years and the kind of organizations that have become our clients, but actually most of our work is on open access textbooks. So they are not actually behind paywalls. They're just free textbooks. Uh, And those are published for strategic or philanthropic reasons. And those are also very important. In fact, all our work began many years ago for a nonprofit that I co-founded called Better Care, which publishes healthcare textbooks for nurses and midwives in developing countries. And those books get hundreds of thousands of, of visits a month. Uh, we publish 25 healthcare books, all, all open access. 
Um, and that's been a tremendously rewarding and important piece of work too. Yeah, I saw that. I was going to ask you about it. I'm glad you brought it up. I was thinking that when you mentioned, uh, you know, the challenge of how to uh, kind of think about what is a book slash website, that it would be ideal for nonprofit creators of content who want to share it. Um, and w for, f when the book becomes, you know, the book is a sort of, I mean, it, it, it is a, an objectification. Um, and of course, websites are objectifications too, but they conceptually are so different. Um, the physicality of books, which we celebrate and love, it are, is also a problem. Uh, you know, the mechanics of, of publishing, as you talked about, all the inefficiencies mm. that exist, really mm. are around the object, the idea of the commodity of the book. And mm. so for a lot of uh, content creators who wish to share their content, the book, the physical book, um, has challenges that the web book, if you want to call it that, um, overcome. And so that's, yeah, you know, yeah. that's a kind of, I, I think that's a really powerful, I mean, of course, then there are the challenges of the web book, which is connectivity, which you mentioned, you alluded to, you know, with the idea of the app that in a lot of, yeah. you know, time, uh, there are many times when you might not have access to the web, no matter how ubiquitous it is now. Uh, there are many places where web access is really um, challenging, phys you know, just because of geography, but also because of economics. So. Yeah. And here, you know, I'm not sure what's happened in South Africa during the pandemic, but in America, with the the, the um, uh, closing of schools and the the move to remote learning, has really highlighted disparities that have existed for a long time, but now are really right out in front. That you know, you if you send mm -hmm. everybody home to uh, to school from home using remote learning, everyone has to have internet, everyone has to have some form of a device. And with schools, many schools, the a majority of students don't have either on yeah. a regular basis. They might have uh, access through a cell phone, but they're working and trying to study on a four inch screen is pretty amazing. Um, yeah. So, anyway, we're sort of yeah. going off on another tangent, but I think that even though web slash book may not be either a perfect solution, there being probably no perfect solution to communication, mm -hmm. uh, it just creates another option that I am I was thinking about as being valuable to um, content creators for whom the entering the book business as we know it, the traditional book business, would not be their first choice. So, sure. yeah, really interesting. So, I, and the whole idea of better care, I thought was really cool. Now, um, is there, what happened to cause, I saw that it's sort of suspended, that you're not creating any more mm. product. Um, you know, what, what happened? To, uh, did you just not yeah. have funding for all of it? Re really good question. Better care became a, a victim of its own uh, success in a, in a strange way. Uh, Better Care as a nonprofit has always prided itself on being entirely self-sustaining without any outside funding by selling paperback versions of the books that it publishes for free. So we put these books online for free and anyone can read them and find them. And the way that we covered our costs, which was usually just one full-time staff member who handled 
sales and customer service and so on. All of that cost was covered by the sales of these paperback versions of the books. And most of those books were used in training courses at hospitals and universities, mostly in South Africa and also in other places around Africa, Southeast Asia, uh, parts of um, the UAE. And then the pandemic struck and all in-person training in healthcare just ended. Of course, when all that in-person training ended, no one was buying our books anymore. And right. as a small nonprofit, we just didn't have a cash reserve to keep us going. But it also, in a sense, accelerated something we knew was going to happen at some point, which is at some point there would be a tipping point when the sales of printed books wouldn't be enough anymore because more and more people would be more comfortable learning on screens. I thought that was a good five years off at least. Uh, I've always been impatient with technology, but I've learned to learned that things actually change slowly. And yet all of a sudden last year, everything changed fast. And we've essentially just had to pause all our physical book distribution and think about reinventing better care. That said, we we found some pretty uh, efficient ways now of outsourcing the printing, uh, essentially using print-on-demand models. Print-on-demand, of course, in the way that Lightning Source, Ingram, Amazon do it is fantastic, but it's generally only cost-effective in uh, North America, in the in Western Europe and Australia, and in in Southern Africa, the the printers just can't handle true print-on-demand, and so. We're finding some innovative ways to get something close. And so Medicare will be back. Print books will still keep selling, but it will be a much smaller part of what we do. <laughs> well, yeah, I think, yes, you've observed something that I think we've seen here too, and that is the pandemic has accelerated changes that were already in motion. Um, and like mm -hmm. you, I think, or may, like many of us, you know, we were sort of getting used to the notion that technology was really ahead of social adaptation. And that we would just mm -hmm. wait and things would eventually change. <laughs> and, you know, change does accelerate over time. I think that's a noticeable factor, you know, if you look at the rate of technology change and social change over the course of, say, the last hundred years, it's accelerated. Both the technology is accelerated and the, uh, and the uptake in social uh, behavior has speed it up as well. Um, you know, mm. it takes less time for social change to occur, adaptational change than it did a long time ago, but it's still slower than the technology. So <laughs> I think for, yep. for those of us who <laughs> observed or, you know, were impatiently observing those changes, some of them, the acceleration has been kind of remarkable to see. And of course, not all positive as we learn through, um, uh, at, you know, through watching mm -hmm. how things really evolve, some of the technology <laughs> adaptation has negative impacts as well. Yeah, I've uh, I've had mixed feelings about Medicare's accelerated um, launch into a whole right. new way of working. But on the on the whole, we'll, we'll come out stronger for it. And uh, luckily, other parts of my work and our business have been absolutely fine. So while Medicare right. took a hit, and that was a pity, uh, it's been an interesting time being on the wave of this acceleration, working in digital publishing um, or any kind of innovative publishing right now is, um, has been fun. Um, and in fact, we, you know, we mentioned BookDash earlier. It was also interesting to see that BookDash, which distributes physical books, and we'll talk more about the detail in a moment, also saw itself dramatically accelerated last year in, in a most surprising way. I know that worldwide, oddly, book publishing, book sales seemed to, to accelerate last year 
despite the pandemic, maybe not accelerate, certainly continue growing, which was great. And maybe that's because everyone's sitting at home reading books uh, when they can't do all lot else. But uh, even at BookDash, where we distribute free children's books, we saw an amazing acceleration of, of, of funders getting behind getting books to children and getting books out both physically and digitally. So yeah, it's been a it's been a blisteringly fast year. We will have to uh, buckle up. Yeah. Yeah, and and some things I think where um, business models are not as easily uh, adaptable, perhaps um, as the um, social adaptation. So that's sort of you know for for me thinking about mm. better care. We don't sometimes we just don't have time to. Um, change a business model when social yep. circumstances change and some businesses are obsoleted by social change, which we've seen and by technology over time. So hopefully that you will find a way of getting back to better care and, and, um, uh, re, re you know, revive it or, or, or at least keep it, make it able yep. to continue publishing. But that is a good entry point to book dash, which was, I think the original inspiration for, for our ha having this conversation, um, and Bookdash is a uh, nonprofit, also uh, who's as as you should probably describe it better than I can. But you're publishing children's book books for Africa for African children, um, and using a what sounds like a really interesting distributed print model. And maybe you could, you know, I think maybe you should talk about Bookdash now. Yeah, thanks. Bookdash is the most remarkable thing to have been a part of. In a nutshell, what BookDash does is produce new children's books for noughts to fives that we distribute for free. And by that, I mean that all the files are available on our website for anyone to download and reuse uh, very openly. Uh, and then we work with funders and consortiums of, of uh, nonprofits to print books in their tens and hundreds of thousands and give them away to children for free. And by the end of last year, we hit our 1 million books milestone where we distributed our millionth free copy uh, to, to a child. And that was incredibly special because when we started the whole thing six years ago, we had no idea that within six years we hit, we'd hit a, a million free books. And uh, so that's been, been really great fun. And I suppose the the place to start with describing the magic is how the books are actually made. So I'll I'll describe that, and then you can tell me where we should uh, go next. But we realized about six years ago, and when I say we, it was myself, my wife Michelle, and uh, our friend Taranan as co-founders. We realized that we had all these friends who were amazing writers and illustrators and designers, and for various reasons that we may not have time to go into felt it was time to just take the lack of children's books uh, in hand ourselves in South Africa and the world, really, and particularly representative children's books, children's books that had black children in them, for instance, uh, that they, the children would be able to recognize themselves in and just make the books ourselves and give them away. We had all worked in publishing for many years and hadn't really been able to feel that our business had been able to contribute to the lack of books. So we thought, well, let's just make them for free. Damn it, we'll just get on with it ourselves. And so we gathered uh, creative professionals together as volunteers. So what we do now as we formalize it is we run these single bookmaking days where we gather teams of writers, illustrators, and 
designers. And each team of three, writer, illustrator, designer, has 12 hours to make a finished children's book. And that's all the illustrations, the text, the design. Uh, and what's extraordinary is the the quality of the books that they can produce. If you bring really the best people, we have a very regular selection process for these people, bring the best people together and have them produce books. Um, they're just they're just absolutely beautiful. And, and and then we have these beautiful things to to give to the world. So that's the book dash, <laughs> the dash to yes, getting a book. the dash is the book to is <laughs> get the book out. And everyone who goes on one of those gets a, a T-shirt saying, I survived <laughs> book dash, because really 12 hours of intense bookmaking is one of the most intense experiences you can have in publishing, uh, but it is amazing that it's both possible and exhilarating. Are these all done in Cape Town, South Africa, or, or do you go to other locations to have the book dash? So far, we've done book dashes at four different cities in South Africa, uh, Cape Town, Johannesburg, uh, Grahamstown, and Durban. And of course, each one, whenever we go to a new city, we get a new uh, cohort of of creative people, writers and illustrators. And one of the really special things we've been able to do twice now is work with funders to bring in writers, illustrators and designers from other African countries. And then at our last book dash, because we've done our last two virtually, given the pandemic, we've been able to involve people from even further afield, from the US, yeah. Australia, the United Kingdom. And the books that come out of these multinational teams are especially wonderful because you could see in them how they combine different literary and artistic traditions. It's really fun. So I, I hadn't thought to ask this, but it's the obvious question. Um, having done a virtual uh, methodology, um, and I assume that this involves something like Zoom where you're all sharing screens and working together, uh, or maybe use different mm -hmm. technology and you can tell me that. But um, do you find, I mean, obviously there is a huge difference between being in a room together for 12 hours and being on screen together for 12 hours <laughs> um, or whatever amount of time it is. And yeah, I can see it's sort of like what we were talking about, that there's a huge benefit that comes from being physically present. You know, that's the social, mm -hmm. uh, creative uh, uh, that we're used to. Uh, by being in a room, especially, I think uh, I love the idea of, you know, you enter you, and, and you close the door, you basically shut out the rest of the world and you just go and yeah. do this amazing collaborative work. Um, and then you go back to your life, but you have an intense experience of personal interaction that's creative. And it can't, mm -hmm. it, when you do a Zoom version of that or a digital virtual version of that you have uh, affordances as the word is to um, uh, involve people from great distances that couldn't be in the same room together so that increases um, on the one side uh, input and availability but of course you always think about the difference between um, the kind of warm and coolness warmth and coolness of being in a room together versus being uh, on a screen together and mm. have you have you looked at that? Has that been an issue or you think about it? Or I mean, maybe it doesn't matter because it's just a, another way of doing things and you'll figure it out. But it just it does seem that there are there must be ways that will evolve of improving mm. the ability of virtual collaboration to be as 
powerful as in-person or at least closer than it is now. Yeah, you've put your finger on a really important issue that we've spent a tremendous amount of time thinking about over the last year. When we decided a year ago to move our book dashes to being virtual, it was obviously with a huge amount of trepidation because, as you say, being in the room together is a kind of interpersonal magic that happens. And uh, we didn't know if we could sustain that virtually. Also, we facilitate the events, the in-person events, extremely closely for a team of 30, 40, well, a group of 30, 40 creatives, which is usually about 10 bookmaking teams. We usually have three or four facilitators so that our facilitation can be very close. And when you're in person, you can move around and you can see how teams are going just right, by osmosizing. Right. However, on screen, when all of a sudden you're all you have to work with is is one screen and one person at a time, really, it is much harder to uh, to do the kind of coaching and therapy really that is necessary to get someone through twelve hours of bookmaking. Yeah. So it was it was hard work. So what we found is that, as you've mentioned, there are the tremendous advantages of being able to involve people from further afield, and there are some inevitable cost savings because we know feeding everybody as much or hiring a venue and so on. However, we've had to scale down the number of teams we can have at any one event. So instead of having our usual 10 teams, we may have about five or six, right. which means we can produce fewer books on the day. Right. But nonetheless, the books have been the same quality. The participants have said they've enjoyed it as much. Also, we've limited ourselves in the last year to book dash volunteers who've done a physical book dash before. So they already have a sense of what's involved. And uh, the next frontier for us, perhaps we'll tackle this during this year, is to see whether we can involve people virtually for whom this is their first book dash. And that will be the new test. So we'll see. We are fastidious about our methodology at a book dash event. We plan the whole thing down to the minute. Uh, and uh, and everything that we do is largely scripted so that we are extremely organized. And We've refined that process over the years. Uh, we've done about a dozen in-person book dashes and heavily refined the process. And, and we feel as if we're at the beginning of the journey of doing the same thing for virtual book dashes. I think we'll get much better at it over the next few years. Hmm. But we'd love to go back to in-person book dashes as soon as we can because right. they're just much more fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's interesting. I'm thinking about whether you could you know, possibly um, uh, document this experience, I think it would be really interesting for um, other people in other countries to share, mm, you know, possibly mm. take up your experience and not necessarily try to duplicate it, but, uh, you know, see if you could, if your experience could help inspire people in other places uh, to do similar yep. things. It might not be the same, uh, but the, I think I'm really interested in the creative process that you've created. Now, you may not want to you know, it, it, I could see why you might be reticent to set, send it out into the wild because if it's really a, a, a process that you're comfortable with in the way you've built it and refined it, and then you let other people do it without necessarily having the same amount of rigor, you know, you could see things going awry. But on the other hand, it's another, mm -hmm. it's sort of like um, language spread. You know, it the language changes yeah. when you, you know, people who speak a language go to another place and then they develop a, a lingua franca that's slightly, you know, their dialect. And yeah. um, it's different. It's adapt. It's adapted to a different um, place and shared 
knowledge and physicality and maybe they go in a different direction mm-hmm. and then you don't understand them anymore you know <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny that you mentioned it because one of the joys of book dash has been that from the beginning we've taken a kind of radically open and sharing approach which is that not just our books are free for anyone to reuse but our methodology as well so we've when we've developed our in-person process we wrote it all up in 20-something page document called the Book Dash Manual, which is essentially a public Google Doc that is accessible, I believe, from our website somewhere. And that means that anyone can read and follow and copy our methodology. The only limitation is that they can't call it a Book Dash. Right. That's the trademark we keep to ourselves, but they can give it their own name. And, it's, and we've seen a number of people around the world uh, do that. And as you say, adapt it a little bit to suit them. And we're in the process now, as we learn about the virtual equivalent of now adding the virtual spin on that document to it as well. We don't feel we're ready to share that with confidence, not because we don't want other people to learn from it, but because we feel as if we don't want to share something that we haven't actually proven yet. But uh, but it will definitely be part of our work to to continue to document how we do things and, and see what other people come up with. That's been great fun as well, seeing what other people can do uh, with a similar approach. Yeah, I can imagine this would be a really interesting project for a class of students, either you know at an earlier age or in a college, um, to mm. you know to create it as an experience of uh, uh, creative learning, learning about creativity, learning about collaboration, mm. learning about how people work together to create something that actually uh, is in the end, a product of some kind. Um, you know, I, I, I could see that being really interesting. One of the interesting things there is, as you say, it's an interesting exercise in creativity within constraints because, of course, you've just got the 12 hours and there's a template, right? All the books are square. They're a particular size. They have the right. same number of pages and some key features that have to be on every, in every book. And, and yet within those constraints, you can do this magic. And it is a great exercise to see what can be done within this particular these particular limits. Yep. So do you also make digital versions of the print books? Uh, you know, in America, I'm not sure how this works in other countries and other places, but um, generally here, uh, it's been assumed that um, people prefer to read children's books in physical form by such a massive uh, amount that, you know, many children's books are not even made into digital versions um, or when they are you know mm-hmm. they don't have much pickup as sort of uh, objective uh, like commodity transactions and yet we then have the development of a company called epic which you may know of that uh, shared, heard, yep. yes you know shares it makes it's essentially a, a subscription model for sharing uh, ebooks with kids and they've had tremendous success so mm-hmm. the notion is not that uh, or I think what they've proven is that it's not the idea that kids don't want to read digitally or parents don't want to uh, read digitally, but that um, buying uh, ebooks doesn't really make sense uh, as a kind of economic uh, transaction. You'd rather buy the print book, mm. and but having a subscription to thousands of fantastic ebooks is really appealing to people. Um, so yeah. I just wonder if you've also extended this into digital formats or web formats similar to what you do with um, Electric Bookworks? Yeah, great question. 
Uh, I suppose the answer is, is is yet a no, yes and no, with some some nuance. So the way we look at it is that our as a, as Bookdash, our primary concern is shipping physical books to children so they can hold them in their hands, and that's got a lot to do with the fact that there is something magical that happens to it for a child when they own their own books. So we start from our vision statement, which is that every child should own 100 books by the age of five. And every word in that vision statement is important. Every child, 100 books by the age of five, and importantly, should own 100 books. And so for us, it's very important that the children have a personal relationship with their own library. And so that's best done physically. That said, obviously, there's tremendous value that can be had digitally from all the content we're producing. So we've published, I think, something around 100 50 different titles now, which have been translated into dozens of languages by both Bookdash and partner organizations. And many of those are on, on the website and in other places. And the way we've positioned Bookdash is to say that our job is to make it easy for other organizations working and specializing in digital books to reuse our content. So as I mentioned, all our books are free for others to use. Technically speaking, they're under a Creative Commons attribution license, which means that those files can be reused in pretty much any way as long as the source is accredited, including commercially. And that's meant that there have been really amazing organizations all over the world who've reused our content, including World Reader, uh, Google for apps like their Rivet reading app, uh, Storyweaver in India, the Global Digital Library, which is an initiative-funded by, I believe, um, USAID and uh, World Vision and other organizations. So the books have seen millions more copies, or if you want to call them that, uh, used and read around the world digitally. Of course, over the last year, we've also seen a tremendous spike in the web traffic just to Bookdash, a site where you can read all the books in English as well, and realize that our role perhaps does need to be a bit more uh, concerned with digital. And so this year, we, we are spending more time and resources on expanding our digital capacity. And what we hope to do is make it even easier for other organizations to, to distribute books digitally. We aren't going to be distributing digitally a lot ourselves because other organizations do it so well. Our job is to fuel them with the content they need. Right. Makes sense. So we should talk about your um, distributed print model because that obviously is really important, <laughs> and I'm in, I've been interested in that for 20 years. Um, how we could use the uh, you know publish to many locations model that's uh, allowed by all of the digital printing technology that has come along over the last 20 years. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how you do that. I assume it's adapted to um, you know the environment, the specific environment in Africa, which many of the people I'm probably were who are listening may not know about. So you might have to talk a little bit about that too. Yeah. And you know, in my in my work, there have been two main areas of distributed print. So I should just clarify which one you're most interested in. There's Bookdash's model for pooling collaborative print runs. Uh, and then there's a startup I ran for some years called Paperwrite, which doesn't run anymore, which is using photocopy shops. Uh, did you have one of those in particular in mind? Well, let's talk about so book, take them in book, turn. book dash 
because that's you know the specific yeah. thing that we've been talking yep. about. Right. Um, how do you print all the books? So, and you know, and, and <laughs> yeah. how is that done economically? Yeah. So, the wonderful thing about publishing open books without a direct commercial motive, although I have wondered whether this could be done or adapted commercially, is that we can put out a call for organizations or individuals who want to contribute to a big print run. And there's usually a minimum contribution of 100 books, uh, 100 copies of a particular title. Uh, and But if they commit, if any individual organization commits to 100 or more copies of a title, they're getting those copies for, if I do a little currency conversion in my head, uh, about 60 US cents per copy, um, 60 to 70. And uh, which to most organizations that have to distribute books to children as part of literacy initiatives or uh, reading programs and so on, uh, is incredibly cost-effective, much more cost-effective than trying to buy books even directly from a publisher at discount. And so that's what we've been doing for a few years. We put out these calls and then dozens of organizations will pitch in and they'll all be ordering anything from 100 books to many thousands of books. And at any one time when we do a print run, we might have 20, 30, 40 different organizations all chipping in. And of course, then there are these tremendous economies of scale on the print run. Uh, just last week, we were doing our biggest single print run yet, which is 209,000 copies, I believe, um, of over a number of titles. And that was really made possible by this kind of collaborative work. Uh, and it's tremendous cost saving. And then the printer just ships the books directly to the participants at the end of the print run. Um, and it's probably been the main reason we've been able to produce uh, so many free children's books uh, over over these last six years. And there and the printers, do you work with multiple printers or do you have one who prints all your books? We work with a few. Obviously, the, you know, any one print run will just be done by one, one printer. We generally have good relationships with two or three printers at any one time. Print run costings can vary hugely based on what each, any one printer has going for them at the time. Uh, it's the cost of printing are enormously uh, uh, affected by currency conversion, by paper stock and supply, even by ink prices and capacity at the time at the printing press and which machines are available and so on. So uh, we then we, we work with each of those printers to find a win-win. And um, yeah, so far it's worked out really well. So I had, I think I had misunderstood. I thought maybe I can conflated what Paperwrite model is with Bookdash. Mm. I <laughs> maybe or made an assumption that Bookdash was printing in places closer to the delivery points so that you would, you know, I was somehow I had it in my mind that Bookdash was a mm -hmm. distributed print model. And it, it sounds like it's not. What you're doing is distributing on the input side yep. where you can get, uh, you're essentially a, like almost like a co-op print model where you co-op the demand so that you can put together a print exactly. run that's big enough to get a low price. So it's like a, a consumer co-op yep. in a funny way. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, but maybe yeah, very much so. Yeah. So maybe talk about tell me a little bit about Paperwrite while we have a little more time, because uh, I am interested in how you have thought about uh, using distributed printers like copy shops and um, mm. you know uh, the similar kinds of printers uh, to produce books. Yeah. Uh, way back in about two thousand and nine, I was commissioned to do a study into the 
potential for print-on-demand to make an impact to specifically the distribution of academic uh, books and journals in Africa. And as I was doing the survey of, of printing companies who might be able to offer print-on-demand, I found myself finding smaller and smaller printing companies until eventually I realized that the hairdresser next to my office with a photocopier at the back was technically the smallest possible printing company and they could print a book. And the only difference really was print quality and maybe price. That was a really interesting moment because, of course, that means that if we could find a way for anyone with the ability to print a book out to legally acquire the rights to print a book for a customer, we could have printers on almost every street corner in the world because heaven knows. <laughs> I mean, we all know I mean, that there are photocopy shops, whether they're called that or not, everywhere in the world. And at the time, uh, that w there was, of course, um, an initiative called the Espresso Book Machine, you might remember, which was essentially a kind of big printer you could buy, but it came with a feed of books that you could legally print out for customers. And I was really just thinking of creating the equivalent, but with anyone's photocopy machine. So what Paperwrite was, was essentially a, a online bookstore that photocopy shops could sign up to, to legally print books out on, on demand for their customers. And really what we were most interested in going for was to turn photocopy shops that were perhaps uh, the illegally um, copying textbooks for students or couldn't copy textbooks for students because it was illegal, turn those into legal booksellers. In other words, make them allies of publishers rather than the enemy. And I believe that that would be a, a useful uh, way to expand book distribution. And so for five years, I ran Paperwrite. We at one point had uh, somewhere between four and 500 photocopy shops around South Africa signed up, over 2,000 books in our catalog. And, uh, and yeah, people were walking into copy shops and ordering books and having them printed on demand. But in the end, we couldn't quite make it sustainable because we couldn't get that one particular kind of publisher to sign up, which is higher education textbooks. Right. In other words, the one area that I believe most needed it and, um, and was most terrified of photocopy shops. And we couldn't get that through the big companies' uh, sign-off processes. So eventually we, we closed that down. I still believe that distributed printing has a future. Maybe in someone else's hand with, with a different strategy, it'll, it'll come off because it just makes all the sense in the world to print close to the customer. We were cutting out so many intermediaries in the book chain that the book pricing, the, the costings were just so obvious. Uh, what The way we looked at it was that because the publisher would set their own rights price, they were essentially selling a license to photocopy, and the photocopy shop just needed to make their usual printing cost, whatever they normally uh, charged for printing something out, that we were effectively reducing the cost of a university textbook, for example, by about 40%. And granted, that was you know an A4 printout that was black and white, but for the vast majorities of university textbooks, that was fine. And the student didn't even have to print the whole book. They could pay the full rights fee, but they might only want certain chapters from the textbook. And so it was, it was kind of highly efficient. And in the end, the publisher's rights fee could be in currency terms uh, exactly the same as they would make if, as if they'd sold that book through a bookstore. Because selling it through a bookstore, of course, as you know, 50% uh, on average, sometimes 40 to 
it goes to the bookstore and then you're paying for printing and shipping and warehousing and delivery. We cut all that out um, and instead just print the book in the coffee shop. But the maths may have been perfect, but humans are not purely mathematical, logical creatures. And we couldn't quite get enough uh, enough of those humans uh, to buy into a whole new way of distributing their books. <laughs> and so, yeah, yep. <laughs> it waits for someone else to pull it off. I'm chuckling just because I've had a similar experience, which we actually have run out of time and we'll have to have another conversation for <laughs> uh, this podcast about dis- strictly about distributed printing models. And I think maybe if I can get you on with a couple of other people, we could have a really interesting roundtable discussion. So I'm going to plan for that to happen in the future and take advantage of uh, the distributed communications model that we are operating on right now. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, Arthur, I really want to thank you. This, for me, has been a terrifically interesting conversation. I've learned a lot, and it's spurred a lot of thinking uh, for me, and I hope it does for others that have been listening in. Um, Thank you so much. This has been Publishing Talks. I'm David Wilk, your host. I've been talking to Arthur Atwell, who's in Cape Town, South Africa, uh, and running or running with a number of other people a wonderful project called Book Dash. Thank you so much, Arthur. This has been really terrific. <laughs>